also so spooky. The devil seems a presence so strong and overpowering that this painting has led to a local superstition. Now it's too late. Welcome back to the Bloody Pit. Today I have a new guest, someone who, uh, although I have recorded with before, it has never been, uh, well, it has only once been for a podcast. He, uh, You guested on uh, one episode over on the Cast. Troy Howarth, thank you very much for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Um, uh, before we get going on the subject at hand today, which is uh, Lisa and the Devil, I would just like to say... Um, very excited to see you've got uh, your, your John Carpenter book has mm-hmm. come out, has it not? Yes, it was only just released both in color version, which is pricier, and a uh, more economically priced black and white edition uh, available on Amazon. Very cool. Of course, uh, you and I met uh, finally once, uh, while you were doing the research for your Paul Nashi book a mm-hmm. few years ago, and I was very happy to be able to help you out with that, and I think I ended up sending you copies of some of the harder-to-find Nashy films. Am I wrong there? Uh, I think you were able to help me. I know you were able to help me late in the day with Sequestra, uh, which was oh. uh, a very difficult movie to see for a while, and um, that was really late in the day, so you were a game-saver there with that. Uh, I'm pretty sure you gave me a couple of the others, too. Cool, cool, cool. I um, One day, I, I want to... Uh, break some people down and uh, t- have a, a, a long-form talk with a few people about uh, the kind of Nashi-adjacent film, Cross of the Devil, oh, which yes. uh, which I think is a very good film, but it's one that uh, is insanely difficult to see, and I don't know that we'll ever see the day when that becomes, uh, shall we say, uh, on a Blu-ray on your shelf. But uh, it's an interesting movie, and I, I just wondered... Um, if uh, if if I was able to arrange this, sir, you want to you want to talk about that film one day? Oh, absolutely. And as far as uh, the likelihood of it showing up, I mean, we live in a world now where uh, El Caminate is available um, with commentary by myself, I might add, and uh, it looks like the Frenchman's Orchard is going to be coming our way eventually too. So I think it's possibility. Yes. I was very excited when uh, when uh, Sergio and Bruno started talking about the that uh, Sitch's uh, mm-hmm. screening that uh, has, is occurring this year. That's uh, that's a very exciting thing because um, when we were doing the when we were going through the first few years of uh, the podcast, it was El Caminante and uh, the Frenchman's Orchard or the Frenchman's Garden that were just the the two films that I, they were like uh, they were like explosions going off we had no idea that films of that caliber uh were waiting for us there at the Mm -hmm. end of the 70s 
Oh, yes. They're his two best films, I think. And uh, I'd say El Caminante is the best performance he ever gave. And prob I'd say it's probably my favorite of his films. But uh, Frenchman's Orchard is probably a solid number two. And, uh, oh, it's it's a beautiful film, just uh, exquisitely detailed and uh, uh, not at all the kind of film. I mean, we love Paul Nashi, obviously. We enjoy the monster stuff and whatnot. But uh, these are not schlock movies. Uh, these are films that would really surprise people who maybe have written him off because because maybe they caught a blurry uh, pan-and-scan copy of Fury of the Wolfman at 3 o'clock in the morning on Channel 9, for example. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, it's, a, it's, it's amazing. I know that for a lot of people, if they know of him at all, they think of him as you know nothing more than a, a monster movie maker, and he was very good at that, but mm-hmm. he was much more than that as well. Absolutely. Well, listen, uh, let's talk a little bit about... Mario Bava's Lisa and the Devil. Now, one of the things that that has always fascinated fascinated me about this is, of course, like most people, I didn't come to see this movie at all until it was issued on Laserdisc back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I always th- feel that I, sh- I, have to, I have to pause and explain what a Laserdisc was, but I'm going to move on past that because I still own some Laserdiscs, <laughs> and I feel a, a certain amount of shame for that. But here we go. We'll just move on I by. I still have that particular Laserdisc. I have it, the Elite Elite Laserdisc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I still, I still have a couple as well, some that, uh, some that have, uh, strangely enough, some that have some extras that just have never cropped up on a DVD or Blu-ray, which is... Uh, True. Very, very uh, unfortunate. So, with Lisa and the Devil, the the film as it is was never seen by its director. Um, it never got a release during his life, and it didn't. I mean, he he was dead for more than a decade before there was even talk of putting his version out on video. And I think that that, that is uh, quite a shame, considering that in a lot of ways this is, uh, in some people's eyes, his masterpiece. And it's certainly the film where he. F- he, for the first time ever, uh, had a good enough relationship with a producer to be given carte blanche to do what he wanted right. to do. Yeah, that's essentially true. I, I would uh, contradict just on one point. It did get a theatrical release in Spain. Uh, I believe they called it The Devil and the Dead, if I remember correctly. It did play um, more or less uncut in Spain uh, back in, in the 70s. But other than that, no, it was totally... Uh, yeah. It was a strange film. It was a hard film to market because it's it's got one foot in the art house and another foot in the grind house. It's maybe a little too uh, grind housey for the art house and it's a little too arty for the horror crowd. So it was a tough movie to sell. Um, certainly it did not play in Italy, for example, um, in its intended form. And uh, we'll get into all that, of course. The movie that it morphed into was something that was <laughs> very unlike what he originally had in mind. Well, I think that um, it, it, it is strange that... A movie of this type, I mean, yeah, you're right. How are they going to sell this thing, right? You can either, and you can take either, uh, you can take, well, there's obvious tax that can be taken. One, amp up the violence and amp up the sex, mm-hmm. which the producer kind of hedged his bets a little bit while they were filming and shot, you know, yeah. stepped in and shot a little extra nudity here and there. Uh, but not so much on the violence end of things. I mean, with producers, especially producers uh, during that period of time, trying to cover themselves and, uh, shall we say, get a little extra skin in the can just in case was pretty yeah. standard. But at the same time, that's not what happened with this film. When we when you sit down nowadays uh, to watch Lisa and the Devil paired on the same disc most of the time, uh, you're going to see the film House of Exorcism as well, which is what 
which is what they took some of the footage from and uh, kind of made a different movie. Now, mm-hmm. um, I never, I, like I said, I never saw House of Exorcism until I had already seen Lisa and the Devil. So my view toward uh, the very different film House of Exorcism has always been one of looking down my nose at it in kind of disdain because. Well, you know, I kind of like art house, art house horror. I think that that's a, a great mm-hmm. little genre. I, I love uh, slow build horror movies. I like uh, dream, uh, dream t- style uh, storytelling. I love the idea of uh, allowing the atmosphere of a film to almost overwhelm the viewer so that you become very immersed within it. Um, there are filmmakers who strive their entire lives to reach that kind of uh, wonderful synergy that that movement between light and dark and waking and sleeping that a film can sometimes get you to feel and the um the beauty of Lisa and the Devil is it does it beautifully it, it does it wonderfully there's 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 not a there's not a moment in the movie where your curiosity overwhelms your desire to just watch what's happening in front of you at that point in time or at least not for me yeah, I had actually seen House of Exorcism first. I remember back in the, I don't know, it was probably in the 80s. Um, I was uh, I was at, out shopping with my mom, and uh, as was often the case uh, back in, in those times, the, uh, the grocery stores typically had a, uh, a video section. And I remember finding a copy of Lisa, or rather House of Exorcism, and I knew what the film was. I had read about it in the Encyclopedia of Horror Films, so I thought, oh, I, I want to see this, you know, because I knew Bava based on Baron Blood, which has a particular relationship to this film. Um, but uh, that was my intro to Bava back when I was very, very young. So um, I rented it out, I watched it, I think I only made it about a half hour or so into it, and I turned it off. <laughs> um, I, I didn't care for it at all, and uh, you know, it was, it, it, I was aware of the fact that the movie had been radically changed from what it originally had been meant to be. I, I was always under the understanding at that time, and of course this is pre-internet, and this is pre-Google, you know Google where you can search everything you know at the, at the drop of a hat. Um, but I kind of was under the impression that the original version of the film was lost, that it didn't exist anymore, that probably you would never get a chance to see it, which seemed terribly, you know, unfortunate. Um, but then in, I believe it was 95, um, I had graduated from high school, and uh, I took a year off before going on to college, and during that year I worked, um, but I also watched a lot of movies. And I, it was during that time that I got really, really hardcore into Bava, and it just so happened that was the time frame where that elite Laserdisc double feature of Baron Blood and Lisa and the Devil had been released. So mm-hmm. to finally have an opportunity to see the film, well, not only that, but also see Baron Blood in its original European form without the Les Baxter soundtrack and the cuts that AIP had imposed on it for American release. Um, that was like, you know, kind of a mind-blowing experience. And Lisa and the Devil, I freely admit when I first saw it, was not a movie that won me over. There were aspects of it that I appreciated, but on the whole, I found it rather uh, difficult to understand, and I didn't really comprehend it. It was one of those movies that took me a few viewings, and then when The Penny finally dropped, I was like, oh my god, this is a wonderful film. Mm-hmm. Um, it is now my favorite Bava film, and that says a lot because I really dearly love his movies. I have to say, I loved it from the from the very beginning, from the very first time I saw it, and uh, part of that is probably because around that same time, I was kind of immersing myself in... Um, the weirder end of the film spectrum in general and kind of reaching a point 
where the standard the standard tropes, the standard ideas, the things is basically all I'm doing then at that point is watching to see how the variations play out. Yeah. And so Lisa and the Devil comes along and it has the elements within it that you know, make it clearly a horror movie. But it is so witty. Telly Savalas' performance anchors mm-hmm. the movie in such a fun way. Yeah. He's so arch and so amusing and so yeah. amused, obviously amused by the goings on himself mm-hmm. that the, uh, the film really did pull me in on first viewing, and there was a uh, back when uh, laser discs were the way that I uh, was watching, uh, you know, a lot of fairly difficult to find films, especially in uh, widescreen format. Mm-hmm. What I, I remember playing and replaying *Lisa and the Devil* as much as I played and replayed the uh, the Corman Poe films in widescreen because that was the first time I could see them at you know in in widescreen ever, yeah. and it was just. That, that period of time where, uh, folks, we had to flip the disc over to see the entire movie. Half the film would be on one side and half yes. on the other. And I can remember, honestly, watching the first or the second half of Lisa and the Devil uh, more than once before flipping it over to continue to the other side. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's mesmerizing, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's one of those kinds of movies that uh, kind of sinks into your, your psyche, and there are images that you'll pull from it later on uh sometimes for nightmares i have to admit (laughs) Mm. but uh also they're just uh they're visual keys that uh i reference uh in other films going forward that i'm not even sure if those particular filmmakers are are aware that they're making me imagine or remember certain things from lisa and the devil Mm -hmm. yeah it's a it's a movie that uh i think the the fact when the movie came out the um laser disc uh it I remember at the time it got a review in Entertainment Weekly, uh, which is not a particularly genre-friendly magazine in general, and I remember that they referred to it as a, quote, incomprehensible wax museum piece, which <laughs> kind of indicates that they really weren't paying attention, but it does denote this kind of snooty attitude towards this type of film. Uh, I even made this comment in my book, uh, The Haunted World of Mario Bava, that... Um, one wonders what that particular critic's reaction to the film would have been if it had been signed by Lucchino Visconti or Federico Fellini, for example. Uh, but because it's only, you know, quote-unquote, only a genre director like Bava, you know, it, it can't possibly be worth taking seriously. Yeah, well, if it was signed by someone, you know, of the art house world, then, of course, they would have paid more attention in the first place instead mm-hmm. of, you know, looking for a way to dismiss it. And so. Yeah, no, it's true. It, and it's a film that came out of a, a particularly strong relationship that Bava had formed with Alfredo Leone um, who was a uh, is an American producer he's still with us he's in his mid-90s now and he's still still going strong and um, Leone had uh, become involved with Bava on a film called Four Times That Night which was shot in 1969 although it didn't come out all the way until 1972 because of uh, various censorship woes and so forth uh, Leone was not initially involved in the production of that film, but it was a... Oh, yeah. Well, as far as uh, Four Times That Night goes, it was um, not initially to be produced by Leone, but it was a... It, it was a production that had a lot of bad luck on it, and it got shot uh, shut down at one point. And Leone was a business associate of the film's primary producer, and he was sent over to Rome to kind of 
take a look at the material, see if it was worth salvaging, put any more money into it and start it up again, or whether they should just cut their losses. And uh, he and Bava met on that particular occasion when he went over to uh, went over to Rome. Uh, things were a little frosty at first because Bava was distrustful of the money men and so forth, but they ended up getting along well, and Leone uh, ended up having a lot of respect for him. And uh, although initially his advice to the producer was, just cut your losses, it's not worth salvaging this thing, uh, the producer said, no, we're going to go ahead and finish it anyway, and you're going to stay in Rome and supervise it. So Leone got to see Bava working firsthand. And then a couple years later, they came together to do a movie called Baron Blood, which was a... Uh, Kind of a throwback gothic uh, horror mm-hmm. movie in many respects, kind of an old-fashioned type of a film that um, you kind of get the impression it's a movie that Bava would have made if he had been making a movie for Hammer, for example, or some company like that where they had a very kind of set house style. Um, in terms of its story, it's very old-fashioned, very creaky. There's not much to it, but his treatment of it was very interesting, and there's a lot of wit in that film, too, and a lot of visual splendor. So the film ended up being very successful commercially, and so that's how this particular movie came to be, because Bava told Leone at one point, you know, I've never had an opportunity to make a movie carte blanche. I've never had an opportunity to really do something, you know, without uh, compromise. And Leone said, well, if you had the money to make the film that you wanted to make, what would you do? And Bava had a, a screen treatment by Roberto Natale, uh, who was one of the co-writers on Kill Baby Kill, and an actor-writer named Giorgio Molini, um, and uh, it was called The Devil's House. And it was basically Lisa and the Devil in its kind of sketchy form. And uh, Leone read it and said, well, if you want to make this, I'll produce it for you. And it was basically as simple as that. He put the money together, was able to get a uh, Spanish co-production deal going with a producer named Jose Maceo, um, who interestingly had just produced a film called Tragic Ceremony, directed by Ricardo Freda, who was one of Bava's uh, sort of mentors in the directing field, a movie that um, I'm sure you've seen and which has a lot of similarities to Bava's film. So that was kind of an interesting coincidence. Yes, yes. I, I, haven't, seen, I haven't re-watched it in a, in a number of years, but anytime uh, Freda's name pops up, I mean, it's, it's hard to forget that, uh, of course, the two of them worked together very early on, even before um, Bava officially entered the director's chair in 1960. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had worked together in a number of films in the 50s. Uh, Bava sometimes was his cinematographer. Sometimes he would do uncredited um, sort of technical work on films, overcoming difficult uh, technical issues uh, with his just incredibly simple but very, very elegant and very um, beautifully realized techniques using glass mat paintings and, uh, you know, uh, miniatures and various in-camera tricks that were very cheap, but that he knew how to do really, really well. Um, so Bava and Freda had been friendly. They had worked together a number of times. And of course, very famously on a movie called Evampiri, which is essentially the first Italian horror film of the sound era. Uh, it was the first time that an Italian film had attempted to sort of go into the horror genre. Uh, Freda had a disagreement with the producers, ended up leaving the film, and Bava finished it for him. So, uh, And that ended up repeating itself later on in another film called Kaltiki, The Immortal Monster, mm-hmm. where Freda directed... Basically, Freda directed most of the boring stuff in the film, unfortunately, <laughs> but Bava did Bava did all the good stuff. He did all the monster stuff, all the stuff that you really enjoy in that movie is, is Bava. Um, he did the photography, he did the special effects, and he also directed those sequences. So, um, yeah, they'd had a... Uh, 
kind of an interesting uh, relationship. And as in point of fact, too, Freda, for a period of time, was the head of the Italian Film Censorship Board in Italy. And it was Freda who uh, withheld the release of Four Times That Night that I had mentioned before. He... Um, hmm. Uh, he insisted that the film was not suitable to be screened. He later said rather snarkily that he was doing Bava a favor because it was such a terrible film, you know, that uh, to keep it back would be doing him a favor. Uh, this coming from the man who made Tragic Ceremony and Iguana with the Tongue of Fire, which <laughs> were not particularly good films around the same period um, <laughs> that uh, Freda hid behind a pseudonym on those films because he wasn't happy with them, as he usually did anyway. But... Uh, uh, Four Times a Night is actually a very good, very stylish and witty little movie. But, uh, yeah, they had this kind of this relationship that was um, very friendly. But at the times, I, I think uh, there might have been a little bit of sour grapes on Freda's part uh, in certain areas. Yeah, when I start thinking when I start thinking about Bava's career, uh, there's a part of me that completely forgets that he was, you know, he was working as a technician and uh, oftentimes as a cinematographer all the way through the 1950s. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, I have to be reminded uh, sometimes forcefully, oh yeah, oh yeah, he's uh, he was uh, he's a second generation filmmaker in Italy in the first place. His his father uh, was a was a filmmaker, and then of course his son Lamberto went on to have his own career. Mm-hmm. And th- there's this. Um, Oh, and the, the the glass map paintings. I completely forgotten that there's a wonderful one in, in Lisa and the Devil. There at the end. Uh, I yes. don't know. I don't know what uh, I thought it was in past viewings, but it was only uh, finally watching it on Blu-ray that showed me. Oh wow! Yes, that is definitely definitely a one of his tr- his bits of trick photography to create this. Uh, you know, the kind of ruined uh, vegetation overgrown villa mm-hmm. there at the end with Elkie Summer, uh, you know, walking out, you know, walking out and then walking behind certain columns and realizing, oh, that's him playing his visual tricks again. He's so good at this. Mm-hmm. And it just it looks so wonderful. Yeah, you would never know. Um, the, the the thing with matte paintings and also with miniatures and so forth is, you know, these are things that can be very effective if they're done well, but frequently they're not done well. So you can usually tell. Um, Bava was really, really good at making these things in such a way that you would never guess. And uh, if you want a good example of what his technical trickery was like, you look at uh, his movie Danger Diabolic, mm-hmm. um, which was a big-budget film that he did for Dina de Laurentiis. Um, where famously he ended up bringing the movie massively under budget because he was using all of these tricks. And even now watching the movie on Blu-ray and you can see things in such clarity and such detail, you can't really tell that that cave that Diabolic is uh, hidden out in is mostly you know, matte paintings and miniatures and things like that. Uh, An earlier film that he did on a much lower budget, Hercules in the Haunted World, is another fantastic example of that. The things that he achieved with very little in the way of physical scenery, and most of it is just, you know, again, paintings, uh, miniatures, um, you know, various different old-school, old-fashioned techniques that he had learned and perfected over his career, which stretched all the way back even to the 1930s. I mean, he was, uh, he really made his first works as a director director in the late 40s as uh, he did some documentaries about art um they're out there they're kind of you know floating around they're not subtitled or anything but you can get a you know if you're a completist you can get a look at them they're kind of floating around out there but he um had spent so many years because his father Eugenio was also a, a great technician and special effects artist so he learned a lot from him and then he perfected it in a way that uh 
impressed even younger filmmakers. I mean, the last movie he worked on was Dario Argento's Inferno, where he was called on to do some technical trickery for that film as well, um, without credit, which was incidentally not Argento depriving him of credit, but Bava didn't want to take credit for things like that because I, I think he was, uh, you know, he was more concerned with just doing a job well done than he was with really worrying about a screen credit for things like that. Well, and that's one of the uh, one of the amazing things about uh, researching Bava's career is that there are there are dozens of movies that he did some little bit of work on here or there Mm -hmm. that, you know, not only would he, you know, have refused to get credit for, but in those days you didn't receive credit for this type of thing where you came on to solve a particular problem, either visual Mm -hmm. or technical. uh, And then, you know, you were, you were working on the film for a week or maybe two weeks just to solve a particular problem for a particular scene. And then you went on to whatever you were going to do next. You, You didn't expect to be credited. No, it's true. And Tim Lucas and his Bava book, you know, obviously made a, a really Herculean effort to kind of identify all of these credits. The fact of the matter is we'll never know for sure. Um, a lot of those are guesswork. We don't know for sure that they, you know, that he really did do those films. Um, he certainly wasn't the only brilliant technician in Italy at that time who really knew how to do a good match shot, for example. So there's a certain amount of guesswork there that may or may not be accurate. And certainly there's probably films that slip through the cracks that nobody knows for sure. Because again, he was a workaholic mm-hmm. um, and it really wreaked havoc on him at different points um, in terms of exhaustion and so forth. When he died in 1980, I guess we're really skipping ahead of ourselves here, but (laughs) when he died in 1980, spoiler alert, um, he was only 65 years old, but if you look at pictures of him, he looks like a man who was about 80. Um, In fact, Martin Scorsese is quoted in Lucas's book as uh, having met him probably around the time of uh, the release of Taxi Driver in 1976. And he thought he was much, much older than he really was. So, uh, yeah, I mean, when you work that hard like that, it's kind of similar, you know, to tie it into um, uh, John Carpenter. You know, I've spent a lot of time writing about him recently as well. It's kind of a similar thing there where, yeah, yeah, John Carpenter smoked like a chimney for many years, which didn't help. But he also worked like a dog. And that can really age you prematurely. And you can see it with both of those guys. Yeah, very true. I mean, and Carpenter's one of those guys who uh, the more you find out about... Uh, his entire career there are all those dead-end streets those uh, those productions that never came to fruition that never ended up with a finished mm-hmm. film that uh you know explain you know why it took uh, you know why there were two or three years between projects that actually made it to the screen mm-hmm. and it's just one of those things where you realize wow there's just so much work that goes on and, and then there's only so much of that work that actually ends up in a finished product and it's um yeah it's got to be wearing on on someone who's trying to create you know, he's trying to be a storyteller, to work so hard mm-hmm. to tell a particular story and then not be able to complete it and realize that I'm going to have to go on to this other thing that somebody's suddenly interested in. And um, mm-hmm. the uh, just just the mental strain alone, much less the uh, the physical end of things of all of the fi- all of the effort put into doing something of that nature that then doesn't work. It just it, it fe- it's it's got to be uh, it's got to be mind bending. I, I can see why um, once Carpenter. Uh, not to go off on this tangent too far, I can see why it was such a relaxing thing for him once he basically retired from uh, the the workaday mm-hmm. world of attempting to get films made, just just to do that thing that he's always looked upon as what was fun in his life and just play music. Yeah, 
No, exactly. That's very true of him. And certainly at the time that Bava did Lisa and the Devil, you know, he was dealing with the reality that he was closing in on 60 years of yeah. age. Um, he's, which is not by no means that old, but when you're, it's kind of like when you're an athlete, you're, you're seen as being over the hill after a certain point. And, uh, the Italian film scene had changed a lot with the, uh, with the emergence of Dario Argento, who, um, not surprisingly, a lot of the old school guys were a little bit resentful of Argento because for, for a variety of reasons, for one, Argento had a big break because his dad was a producer. So right. he didn't really have to work his way up the ladder in the same way. And that pissed people off like Bob. And, and certainly Lucio Fulci was, was incensed over that as well because Fulci spent so many years working as an assistant before finally getting a chance to direct his own film. So you can see where some of these guys would have been a little bit bent out of shape. Um, and I'm sure, and I'm sure it didn't a, help a, that Argento's first film was a massive hit. So, Well, eventually it was. Not at first. It was a film that came out. It, it didn't get a lot of attention at first, but word of yeah. mouth. Kind of so, Again, we can bring it back to Halloween. It's kind of similar to what happened to Halloween. Halloween was not a big hit right at first. It took a while. Um, you know, initially Carpenter thought that movie was going to be a flop in much the same way that Assault on Precinct 13 had been a flop. He thought, oh, well, you know, move on to the next one. And then at a certain point, the figures started to rack up and it started, people started to come and people started taking it seriously. So much the same story with Bird of the Crystal Plumage. And of course, that level of success that Argento had, Bava never had that in his films as a director in Italy. His films typically were not well regarded, apart from his Dr. Goldfoot film, which is, of course, recognized as a major disaster yeah. uh, outside of Italy. But in Italy, it was a big hit because Franco and Ciccio were very, very big box office draws. So um, that's another story for another day, perhaps. Yes, but yes. most of his movies that we regard as classics were not hits with the Italian public so he's finding himself in a position where he's getting older um, he's not really made his mark in the Italian film industry although he's well regarded by his peers I've heard stories about uh, him being friendly with people like Fellini and Visconti and uh, Antonioni and that they had respect for him and I'm sure that's true um, you know, in the same way that w was also true with Fulci, that people like Elio Petri regarded Fulci as a great director. Uh, the critics did not. So he was not really taken as a serious artist. So Bob is at a place where he's getting on in years. He hasn't really made his mark. His most recent films have not been terribly successful. Um, you know, films that, uh, again, nowadays people are very, very fond of were not hits at the time that they came out. Mm. Um, Baron Blood was a notable exception. That movie kind of ticked the boxes because, you know, let's be honest, it's kind of a routine horror movie in many respects. It's, the interesting thing about that film isn't the plot. It's the way that Bava shoots it. So it ends up connecting with the audience. It's commercially successful. And here comes Lisa and the Devil, which is a chance for him to make a kind of a personal statement. But unfortunately, it ends up being a major disappointment, too, because nobody wants to buy it. It sits on the shelf, effectively. It has to be re-edited into another film that he effectively disowned. And in between that, he does an attempt at a kind of a modern, cutting-edge crime thriller, a movie called Rabid yes. Dogs, which also contributed to the fracturing of the relationship with Bava and Alfredo Leone because that movie ends up not getting finished. Uh, it sits on the shelf. There's a lot of bad blood between him and Leone because he's trying to get Leone to pump money into it to finish it, and Leone refuses because, you know, there's a whole big backstory behind that, too. And unfortunately, um, it had to have been a really, really bad period for him on a certain level because he's made two movies in a row that he's very proud of that aren't getting a release. They're sitting on the shelf gathering dust. Another movie that is basically the bastardized version of a movie that he really loved 
is released does really, really well (laughs) because it's playing into a trend that's really popular at the time that he couldn't have cared less about. Um, It's not surprising then it took him a few years to get another film going uh, with Shock in 1977 where, you know, uh, I think by that point he was kind of looking to move into that sort of semi-retirement mode himself, although he wasn't looking to stop altogether. Even at the time that he died in 1980, he was uh, planning to get another project off the ground. So um, he wasn't looking to stop, but I think he was falling a little bit out of love with the whole filmmaking thing because of all these disappointments. On the subject of Lisa and the Devil, uh, I think you've said before that this is your favorite of his films. Yes. If you were to put together uh, a list of five reasons why it is your favorite, uh, I'm assuming that first and foremost would would probably be the atmosphere, or would there be another aspect of the film that really brings it to that high level for you? The atmosphere is certainly high up there. The humor is up mm. there as well. Yes. Um, it's a very, very funny film. Most of Bava's films are kind of blackly funny. Um, I had actually toyed with the idea of calling my book Blood and Black Humor <laughs> back in the day, uh, which was rejected. Uh, maybe wisely, I don't know. Um, the, the Haunted World of Mario Bava was not a title that I ever was in love with or wanted, but the publisher at the time was insistent that's what it was going to be called, so I had no choice. Um, Blood and Black Humor, which incidentally, it, because it was a British publisher they were concerned about the spelling of humor because in in the uk of course they have it with the u um and they thought that might be confusing to americans so i'm reminded of the story about having to retitle the the devil rides out as the devil's bride so people wouldn't think it was a western so (laughs) that's how these things go um the humor is definitely a big draw it's a very um it's a very uh, dreamy film it's also very erotic it's very romantic and um, uh, I think, you know, in addition to the, the atmosphere, uh, the humor, the kind of romanticism, uh, we must also talk about the music, uh, even though that's kind of a complicated story that I'm sure we'll get into as well. Um, but I, I'm very fond of the score and the use of music in the film. I think the score is and exceptional, yes. It, it really is. Uh, unfortunately, for Alfredo Leone, it became a big uh, boiling point of anger at one point when he realized that very little of the music, if indeed any of it, was actually written for the film. Um, <laughs> but also um, that performance from Telly Savalas is... Um, if I had to pick two favorite performances in all of Bava's films, I would pick... And most people would go with Barbara Steele, and no disrespect to Barbara Steele, she's wonderful and all, but her performance is nowhere close to the top of the list for me. My picks would be Telly Savalas in Lisa and the Devil and Ricardo Cucciola as the um, as the driver in Rabid Dogs, ah. the uh, the man who who has more going on than we realize. <laughs> so that is, a, that those is are, an excellent performance, right? Oh, brilliant, brilliant! Which originally was supposed to be played by um, Al Lettieri, um, who huh. of course is well known for uh, uh, what is that? The Charles Bronson, Mister Majestic, yeah. and uh, of course the uh, the Getaway and the Godfather. So um, he was going through a bad patch by that time. He was an alcoholic, and apparently he was reeking of alcohol and and just was not in good shape. And Bava fired him. Um, so he got Cucciola to come in at the last second. And, oh, what a wonderful performance! Talk about a poker face. He 
well, exquisite. But uh, Savalas too, I just love him in this film. And I just think uh, so much of what I love about the film is summed up by him. It's just the fact that he can be kind of creepy at different points, but he's also hysterically funny. The film is anchored by Telly Savalas's humorous portrayal of the devil. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I have to say the other half of that, the Lisa portion of it, um, I, I have to say I've always been enamored of Elkie Summer, mainly because of her absolute, I mean, she's beautiful and mm-hmm. she's radiant in this. She's absolutely gorgeous. She's being photographed by, uh, by uh, people who uh, are, are trying their best to bring out the, 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 the most beauty in her that she can. Mm-hmm. Um, the, she's, she's, and she's very good in the film. She's very, very good. And I have to admit that until I saw uh, this film, I'd never really paid attention to her as an actress, but more as just this beautiful accoutrement that would be yeah. on screen. And, but she's very good in this. And um, the the film kind of rests in, a, in in some of its particulars squarely on her shoulders because if mm-hmm. we're not willing to follow her and her journey, her kind of emotional arc through this, then we're not going to really care all that much. Now, luckily, even if you ended up with an actress who didn't pull off what I think Miss Summer pulls off, the the movie has enough strengths that I think that it would have still been successful. But she's quite good in this, and there yeah. there are moments uh, I would I would still I would still love to know how we got the white tears out of her when she's lying on the bed. Oh uh, yeah, that is that is an amazing effect, and I'm not even sure that that's something that they necessarily were going for. I just wonder if it's something that's a, a kind of odd, uh, so, you know. Uh, uh, problem with the makeup or something that was unexpected with uh, you know, some kind of bizarre combination of the, her tears and the makeup in some way but mm-hmm. she's so good in this and she's she's in roughly 75 I mean she's in roughly 75 to 80 percent of the scenes in the movie oh yeah and, and so there's a there's a, a lot that is kind of resting on her uh, and Savalas is fantastic, and he's the most memorable thing in the movie. But he's 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 very much a supporting player. You can't have yeah. that character on screen at all times. He's there to uh, make make interesting points, deliver really interesting lines, crank up the mysterious nature of not just his character, but all the goings on in this mm-hmm. you know very haunted palace, and uh, the joys of watching these characters in this in this strange little play uh it becomes it becomes a wonderful examination of how you want to read into this uh because once you've watched the movie and i i I come to this saying you know i I probably have watched this movie more than i don't know two dozen times over the course of Mm -hmm. my life and i've got to say that at a certain point You've absorbed the story. You've absorbed most of the nuance that you can find within it. And you start to realize that there are things to be seen within this. And some of them, because of the nature of this being, what Bava, you know, something that Bava strove to create, whether it was collecting bits and pieces from his life that he wanted to to put together into a story, or if he had a definitive idea for a through line for a story that he wanted to tell and hang all these these things on, like uh, you know the story was the the clothesline and he could hang mm-hmm. all these interesting ideas from it. What I begin to see within the movie, and I have to think that some of this was placed there consciously by the people making the movie, is it seems to be about so many different things, of course, and not just necrophilia mm-hmm. people, although that's oh, there. Yes. <laughs> 
but it's also in a lot of ways about the idea of free will. And I keep looking at the movie as a way to examine different ways of not just living your life, but choosing how to look at your life yeah. before, during, and after it. Yeah. And the uh, the the what the the you you can you, there are moments when you're watching characters looking back on past decisions with regret or looking back back on past decisions trying to decide whether what they did was the right or wrong thing and then other points where they're going through something at that moment and you can see them of two minds about what the choice they should make should be and there's a there's a real uh, of course this this movie this movie lays these things out as if we're watching this this stuff from decades possibly centuries before in the first place mm-hmm. but the ideas that they're embodying are so universal that it, it becomes something that doesn't need to be you know it doesn't need to be split off into some other time period i mean i almost feel like the movie has three distinct time periods that it's playing in but not the characters certainly don't draw attention to it because you have the the modern you know early seventies uh, period of time which starts with Elkie Summers' character as a you know as a tour a tourist in in uh, Spain, and then you have the uh, people that she runs across when she's lost and night has fallen who are in this car which could either be an antique car from the perspective of somebody in the 1970s or it could just be a step backwards in time to when that car would have been a contemporary vehicle Mm -hmm. and then that that she gets into that she gets into that vehicle with these people and it's almost as if uh maybe that that's kind of a, a a a way to transport herself from further from her, her her time period to another time period, which seems to be earlier, which is when they arrive in that older car mm. at the villa that they spend the rest of the movie in. And it's nothing, you know, there's nothing in this film that would, that would force anybody to need to think about these things to enjoy what's being told in front of you. But as I say, I have watched this movie far too many times and I'm mm. now seeing, uh, I'm, I'm now seeing all these things uh, kind of, to my eyes, very clearly delineated, and it just points once again to uh, the idea that you know these these this story can take place at any time. These characters could all be intermingling, and they could be uh, dead, alive. They could be uh, whatever state of it. They could be spirits. They could be ghosts. They could be whatever they may be. Mm-hmm. But the the underlying things that are driving them are all universal. All of them are experiencing these very human frailties and emotions. Mm-hmm all the time and it's really about how these people are dealing with the things that they do to themselves they do to others and how they think and feel and it's 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 absolutely fascinating yeah it's purgatory effectively um they're stuck in a kind of purgatory and uh i mean it's it's the nature of bava i mean essentially the man was a pessimist this comes through in his work very clearly um bava's films are not renowned for having particularly happy endings for example very famously some (laughs) of the films have deliciously nasty endings um and uh you know i think in particular the endings of rabid dogs and twitch of the death nerve as just you know you want to talk about great final twists that's you can't top those um, yeah. But I've always described him as being a sort of non-judgmental moralist uh, in the sense that he there is a moralism that comes through in his films in the sense that, you know, uh, there there is an attempt to kind of recognize the fact that uh, certain stratas of society are kind of corrupt and out of control. 
and are exploiting uh, the the less fortunate and so forth. I mean, you get a lot of that in his films. Uh, you know, corrupt aristocracy uh, kind of families that are, you know, in her, internally kind of decaying and falling apart, which is very much true in Lisa and the Devil as well. But yet, at the same time, he's not somebody who seems to be sort of, you know, tut-tut-tutting his characters for making bad choices. He just kind of shows them for what they are. And a lot of the films have to do with greed. That's the big uh, motivating force that... Uh, uh, drives a lot of the people. We think about his Jallo films, for example, like Blood and Black Lace and Twitch to Death Nerve. I mean, uh, Five Dollars for an August Moon. It's it's all about greed. Ultimately, that's that's the driving force that makes these people, you know, tick. Um, but he's not really interested in kind of condemning them for their actions. More kind of wryly standing back and observing as we see these people kind of destroy each other because they are so morally and uh you know ethically compromised that they just don't know how to behave in any way other than a really terrible fashion so uh that's something that's that's very true of a lot of his films and certainly we see it here with this group of characters that are assembled um there is this idea of a kind of a time slip which is also something that was present in kill baby kill which again yeah. was co-written by roberto natale who is not credited on the american prince of the film or the english language prince of the film but i believe he is credited on the italian credits um he and his co-writer Romano Migliorini, I hope I'm not mangling that too badly, um, they had co-written Kill Baby Kill with Bava back in 1965, and uh, they had a, they basically developed this story with Bava. They're not credited on the uh, American Prince, which again, it's only credited to Bava and Alfredo Leone as far as screenwriting goes, but um, it's known that they definitely had a hand in uh, developing and devising the original story. So that, that idea of a time slip of a, a place that has a kind of strange, enchanted kind of a quality villa graps in Kill Baby Kill and the villa in Lisa and the Devil you get a sense that this is it, these are places where time stands still you know they're kind of consumed with vegetation and it's very much about um seeing places that are in decay this Elisa really is kind of the ultimate movie about decay in many respects it's an extremely uh it, it, it's almost enamored with decay in all kinds of different forms both in terms of the architecture but also in terms of even you know what can happen to the human body as well as we get to the big you know necrophilia set piece later in the film um with the skeleton in the bed and so forth so um, it, it has all these kinds of weird magical things in it, but that are very can be extremely disturbing. But I think are all the more disturbing because Bava films in a way that is extremely dreamy and romantic. Well, I think I agree with you completely about the whole idea of uh, the timelessness or there being a time slip because. Bava, being one of the most amazing of visual directors of this period, I think he gives us a repeated image that kind of, it's almost as if he's trying to, to bring our attention to the idea of time standing still, yeah, the which clock. is the, this broken, the broken pocket watch. Yes. And um, seeing something like that once when uh, near the beginning of the film is, is one thing. Seeing it repeated a couple of times again later on in the movie, uh, and in the second time, even even seeing the the, the the making making sure you're aware that it's broken by having the, uh, the 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 glass facing broken in half and shifted off to one side, he's he's trying to draw your attention to the fact that that time 
doesn't seem to exist here in the way that we would expect it to. As a matter of fact, it may not move forward or backwards at all. No, it's stuck. It's stuck, and I think that's the whole point. And this way, you get even uh, another glimpse uh, in the film of of a sort of antique clock that you see in the film, where again the the hands are sort of uh, everything has just stood still. Um, this is somehow preserving yeah. some awful thing that has happened. And again, these characters are going to be um, reenacting this scenario again and again and again, and to which there's no escape. Which, of course, goes back to your point about this whole idea of the concept of free will, which is something that Fulci explored a lot in his films as well, this concept of characters who are trying to sort of fight back against destiny. You know, it's this idea, uh, are certain things sort of predetermined or not? Can we escape that? And uh, Lisa, as a character, who doesn't really even exist on a certain level, and effectively her real identity is Elena, this character that uh, is is part of this bizarre love triangle that's uh, had tragic consequences in the villa many years earlier, um, is just a, a sort of portion of her personality that's trying to rebel and trying to escape, which leads to the ending of the film, which... Um, was apparently an idea that Alfredo Leone added into the script, the idea of you know boarding the 747 um, and trying to escape. And, of course, who's flying the plane but the devil? So there's no escaping from it. Um, you know, uh, Bava was a, a filmmaker who had a tremendous delicate touch in many respects, and there is a lot of subtlety in his films, including this film. But I will say uh, there is one moment in the film that I'll agree with uh, some criticism that I've read where he he uh, underlines something a little too heavily and it does come off a little bit clumsy. Uh, that's the sequence at the beginning of the film where Lisa first sees uh, Leandro, the character played by Telly Savalas, and he goes to the trouble of adding on a, a creepy piece of music and the mural uh, being superimposed on his face. Eh, it didn't yeah, really need yeah. that. I think the point was there, and I think anybody who was paying attention would have seen it. But um, sometimes that could have the been only, something that only, Leone pushed for too. For his, uh, all I know. Well, yeah, and the, the thing is, I mean, all, all of us for uh, we're, we're all looking back at this movie instead of being in the in the moment when the film was made. And so the the reason I'll cut, I agree with you that it's not necessary. The superimposition of the the fresco uh, image over Telly Savalas's face, but at the time we should all remember. That at the time, a producer would be wondering if, uh, and maybe even a director might be wondering if the the um, the similarity of the two mm-hmm. faces were go- were going to make an impression on an audience. Because at that point in time, Telly Savalas was not super famous. He was uh, well over a year to a year and a half away from his what yeah. seven or eight seven year stint as Kojak on television, and therefore yeah. becoming a, a kind of ubiqui- ubiquitous celebrity face. And so when this was made, the idea of putting that there, kind of drawing a line under it and making sure people understood what the Elkie Summer character was reacting to, I can understand. I, too, wish it wasn't there, but I'm wondering if, the, I'm wondering if that's because, well... I know what Telly Savalas looks like, and it's very it's obvious. But it's true, yeah. And that, and of course, uh, yeah, that reminds me of a story that Leone tells on the uh, audio commentary on House of Exorcism, which um, uh, kind of underlines the point that you can't believe everything that Alfredo, Alfredo Leone tells you. Um, <laughs> he he makes the claim that uh, they found this fresco, and uh, as soon as he saw it, he said, "Well, there's only one man who can play the devil. It's got to be Telly Savalas." That fresco was not there. It was created for the film, <laughs> so I think we can we can call BS on that particular point. But uh, interestingly, you know, again for a film that was um, 
Uh, Leone was trying to give Bava a, a prestige kind of a platform with this film, and he later admitted he even had some hopes that if the film had done well, that maybe there it would have gotten a lot of recognition, maybe it would have won an Oscar or two. You know, there were there were some. Uh, kind of grand thinking about this film. He was really hopeful that this movie would be a, a, a big hit and it was going to really you know, set the world on fire, which of course did not happen. Um, but he was trying to help that by getting name actors into the film as much as possible, as he had done on Baron Blood, where you had uh, Joseph Cotton right. and Elkie Summer. Um, so, of course, Elkie Summer was already part of the Bava Leone dynamic, so she was the obvious choice to play Lisa. Um, I don't know that anybody but Telly Savalas was ever considered to play uh, Leandro, the devil, um, but there were some big names that were approached about doing this film for other characters that didn't work out. So, um, I'm quite happy with the cast as it worked out, but when you look at the people that Leone kind of tried to entice to appearing in this film, it's pretty extraordinary. Well, uh, I'm, well, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, Eduardo Fajardo, but yes. I also know that uh, that that's a that, that's a very cult actor to to pull out. He's not someone who's going to be as well known. And also, the same is true of with with uh, with Silva Casina, mm-hmm. who. I, I you know I've seen in several you know Euro uh, Euro spy films and and westerns from the '60s and uh, I did find it funny I thought I, I thought I was correct about this and I had to I had to make sure but uh, this you know Elkie Summer and uh, Miss Cosina co-starred in Deadlier Than the Mail yes. five years before they made this movie yes and uh, I. I, I that was I, I found quite amusing. They they they're they're together in a bulldog drumming movie made in the late sixties, and then they're uh, they're portraying characters who are so vastly different in uh, this very strange art house horror film five yeah. years later. Well, those bulldog drumming films are fun for the Euro cultists anyway, because bulldog drumming himself is played by Richard Johnson. Yep. Uh, who ended up having a quite a uh, distinguished uh, Euro cult career as well, as well as doing a lot of dubbing on various films, including uh, Danger Diabolic. Um, he he voiced a couple of characters in that film. So um, yeah, I mean that's that's kind of a fun little uh, crossover. And of course, Silva Koshina was also um, had gone all the way back to the 1950s with Bava when she was in the two Hercules films with Steve Reeves that he photographed and did the effects for. And of course, uh, it's it's also impossible to uh, to overlook uh, Alita Valley. Oh yes, who uh, of course most people who are Eurocult fanatics are going to remember her unforgettably in Suspiria. Mm-hmm. But of course, all the way back to Eyes Without a Face and The Third Man. Oh, I mean, yes. this is an actress who I mean, she was a real she was a real mm-hmm. get for the for the film because she's extremely good in the movie but she's also just one of those women with so much talent and so much experience on screen that she's got she's going to elevate whatever whatever you put in front of her in the first place and she is magnificent in this movie she is um the original casting choice i don't know if you know this or not but uh, leone's original idea was betty davis um betty, ah, betty yes betty davis passed on it as did some other people that were uh, approached for playing other characters but um Bava had worked with Valentina Corteza on uh, The Girl Who Knew Too Much back in 1962, and he wanted her to play the Countess, and uh, Leone said, no, no, she's not a big enough name. Funny thing is, that same year that Lisa kind of came out, kind of sort of came out when it was premiered at Cannes in in 73, and um, it did play in Spain in 73, um, Day for Night came out, and 
uh, Valentina Cortez won an Oscar for that. So who knows? Maybe she would have been good for the film anyway. But Leone was the one who suggested uh, Alita Valley, and Bava said, oh, there's no way that she's not going to accept doing this movie. And of course, um, she had already done some uh, genre stuff. She'd shown up in things like... Uh, uh oh god you know some of the jallo type titles that she had done um i oh god i'm drawing a blank on the title now um oh what i in the labyrinth i in the labyrinth i was saying i in the hurricane but that's not it i in the labyrinth yes <laughs> yes that's the one she had shown up in that and uh as you say she would end up appearing in two uh films for argento she was also in inferno apart from suspiria and uh yes ended her career in fatal frames which is not a great way to end your career but <laughs> nevertheless no, no not especially i mean i i think about i think about um miss valley's uh career and it's like uh she was in uh she was in what i consider to be one of the lesser Hitchcock films for Hitchcock, oh, Paradigm the Paradigm Case, case. Yeah. and uh, quite good in that. But at the same time, uh, you know, you fast forward and she's working with Argento yeah. decades later, and it's 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 one of those neat bits of continuity where she worked with Baba, she worked with Argento, she worked with Hitchcock. Yeah, uh, well, and even fu- worked, funnier you know. still, her um, Argento's mother, who was a very famous uh, fashion photographer. Um, had taken portrait shots of Alita Valley back in her heyday when she was working with Visconti on Senso and things like that. So, yeah, she um, she had been around for some time. And funnily enough, one of her co-stars in the Paradine case, uh, Louis Jordan, was originally uh, approached to play the role that Espartaco Santoni ended up playing the character of Carlos. So um, ah. that could have been an interesting um, reuniting of, of actors, but unfortunately that did not end up happening. Yeah, Louis Jordan in that role. That I mean, don't get me wrong. I think that it's it's perfectly fine with the actor who is who is there, but he would have brought a, a kind of dark, brooding um, element to it. That I, I hate to say it, but would almost would have almost put me in mind of being doubtful of his uh, being da- being doubtful of him more early in the story than the movie is is setting you up to be. I suspect, and I'm not sure about this, but I've always suspected that that character was cut down somewhat because. Leone indicated that the only actor in the film who really gave him a hard time was Espartaco Santoni, and I've always wondered if maybe that character was diminished somewhat when uh, when Santoni was cast in the part, because um, I can't imagine going to an actor like Louis Jordan and trying to entice him in playing something where he really doesn't have much to do. Of course, that yeah. could be the reason that he turned it down, but another actor uh, who at one point um, was approached... Um, there was a, a point where one of the producers on the film, a guy by the name of Joe de Blasio, who was uncredited on the film, but he was he was involved in producing the picture, um, was friends with Burt Lancaster, and Burt Lancaster came onto the set. Um, there's yes. there's actually pictures of him on the set, you know, paying a visit, uh-huh. and uh, there's a great story in there about in uh, Tim Lucas's book from Leone, where he talks about. Um, you know, he he goes to De Blasio and says, "What do you think? You know, can we? Do you think maybe we can get him to play Carlos?" And he's, oh, I don't know. And they talked to him about it, and Lancaster said, "I won't say exactly what he said, but basically, if certain favors were performed by Elky Summer, maybe he would be willing to do it." This got back yes. to Bava, and Bava said, "Hell, I'll do it for him if he'll play the part." <laughs> exactly. Uh, so that did not happen. So we end up with the Spartaco Santoni, of course, who we know uh, for uh, Bloody Ceremony, the uh, Jorge Grau film 
um, which he was. Oh, I do think that it's funny that it became a joke between Elkie Summer and uh, the producer and the director yes. of this film that that, that they, they, to- they this was not something that was kept from her. This was no, no. this was even uh, this was something that they joked back and forth between the three of them about. So. Yeah, no, she was a good sport about it. Apparently, she loved Bava. Incidentally, she really held him in, in high esteem and said that uh, she regarded him as being like a like a father figure, which is the same sentiment that uh, Daria Nicolodi uh, would voice later on when she did two films with Bava as well. Um, but finding people who didn't like Bava is pretty hard to do because, in general, unlike a lot of his contemporaries and, and a lot of the people who came after him, um, he was a very even-tempered, very calm, very gentle, um, very funny guy. And uh, he wasn't the kind of dark, broody, moody kind of a character that Argento was, nor was he the uh, hysterical kind of a figure that Freda or Fulci was. So um, he was very well-liked by most of the uh, people that he worked with. I, I think uh, uh, he, he just had a way of putting people at ease. And he would tell people, uh, you know... He was always very down on himself as a director. He would always say that he was a mediocre director at best, that his movies were just bullshit. Um, very atypical. You don't hear directors talking like that in general. You know, you can't imagine like a Tarantino going out and interview and saying, oh, my movie's just bullshit. Don't pay attention to it. They don't do these things. <laughs> Um, but he would he would say, I do know my way around the camera, and if you listen to me, and if you stand where I tell you to stand, and kind of tilt your head however I tell you, you're going to look good. And he did that. Yeah. And you can see that even in something like Barbara Steele, who has a very unusual kind of beauty. Um, she's almost like a Charles Adams uh, caricature in some respects. She needs a cinematographer and a director who are sympathetic to that look and know how to shoot her. Um, she looks exquisite in Black Sunday, of course, as she does in Eight and a Half and, and in her Freda films. But if you look at some of the other films that she did, movie like um, The She-Beast, for example, she doesn't look that great in it. Not saying that to be mean, but just to underline the fact that if you have a director and a cinematographer who know how to frame and photograph people and really bring out their their looks, in a, and, and this goes for men as well as women, um, you're going to have a really great visual showcase. You can certainly see that, too, with Dahlia Lavi and Christopher Lee in The Whip and the Body, where neither of them ever look better on camera. So it's a particular skill that he had, a particular gift. And certainly, as you mentioned before, it's also very evident with uh, Elkie Summer. But I'd say also with Silva Koshina, who, um, you know, is 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 also quite... Uh, quite fetching in the film and, and beautifully photographed and Alita Valley as well, you know, who at this point is, is middle aged but still a very strikingly beautiful presence. Well, I think that that attitude that you're talking about with Mario Bava about, you know, kind of denigrating his own abilities or his own uh, his own skill. I think that part of that probably comes from, you know, him being a second generation filmmaker mm-hmm. and him being someone for whom, you know, he, he grew up if not in the industry when he was young, at least adjacent to it, and, and knowing and knowing that his father, that's his job. Mm-hmm. And th- so it becomes very much something that you learn to do as opposed to it being some kind of mystical, magical thing where the idea would be to inflate your own capabilities oh, yeah. to make sure to make sure that people think better of you. It's like, no, 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 you you gain people's respect by being able to do the work well. And so that seems to me to be exactly the kind. I mean, yeah, you're right. It's very hard to find anybody who has anything bad to say about him. And a lot of that probably does come from that kind of workman's attitude of, well, no, I will prove my worth to you. Mm-hmm. 
I don't have to talk about, you know, I'm not going to talk myself up. I will demonstrate how good I can be. Yeah. No, he, he, again, he had a mastery of the technical. And I think part of it, too, is also down to the fact that Baba's father was apparently kind of a tough guy to impress. And I, I don't know if it was a certain coldness on his part or if he was just trying to sort of encourage him. Uh, by being harsh, but he would, he was, he apparently made different comments at different points that were kind of cutting that kind of hurt Bava's self esteem a little bit. Um, he certainly had made a comment at one point that, um, you know, because Bava tended to make these films on very low budgets and he was all about sort of improvising and adapting to things instead of, you know, aspiring to make the big movies, he would say things like, well, you're never going to be an Antonioni if you work like that. Well, I mean, you know, uh, th there's there's room for the Antonioni approach, but there's also room for the Bava approach, which is incredibly yeah. inspiring when you look at some of the films that he did where he really did have to sort of improvise his way through and find a way to make it work. Um, you know, uh, one of the reasons that there's such a tremendous consistency, technical consistency in his movies is because he was pretty much a one-man film unit. Um, he could do so much of it himself, whereas a lot of other directors, if you look at some of the later films that Fulci did, for example, they are a little bit disappointing superficially in many respects because they're very rough around the edges because he no longer had the best technicians anymore. He didn't have the time or the money. Right. And he couldn't do those things himself. Bava was able to. So whether he was making a big film for Dino Laurentiis or he was making a little movie um, with virtually no money like Kill Baby Kill, the results were always comparable because he could do it all himself. The eyes, Leandro. What color are the eyes? Changeable, my lady. But by candlelight. Blue. She's blind, my God. And the hair, Leandro. Tell me of it. Tell me of the hair. Light, my lady. And gently flowing. Golden like a field of wheat? No, my lady. Brighter still and haloing an equally beautiful countenance. Oh, she's a very lovely creature, my lady. You wouldn't listen when I told you to stay away. Now it's too late. Well, I, I thought it was interesting, the, the, the set dressing, the, the, the incredible opulent look of this villa, uh, the, there, and there's a lot of variety in this. I think it's, I think it's fascinating to, to pay attention to the fact that the film looks so, this film does look very good, but of course he did have money on this film. But it's the details that I think that are very intriguing and in that there's, a, there's an emphasis, and of course this is all part and parcel of the story that's being told, of course, this, is, this folds into... The, the not just the uh, the the look of the movie but the the story being told one influences the other and that's all these mm -hmm. the, the the emphasis on statues the emphasis on all these mannequins and even the uh, the mannequin heads there's those tables in that uh, that one bedroom that that ha has the rows of uh, mm -hmm. for lack of a better term just <laughs> disembodied mannequin heads in rows uh both uh, both uh plain and with various splashes of paint across them in uh somewhat apparently random fashion 
And believe me, I've done mm-hmm. a lot of still, a lot of a lot of pausing, trying to go through still images, trying to discern if there's something to be caught, something to be gleaned from the the images of these uh, these various rows of, of uh, mannequin heads to see if there's something there that uh, I haven't picked up on before. Uh, not that I not that I found anything this time around, but I think it's interesting that that seems to be in a weird way uh, like a, like a workroom, like a, a place mm-hmm. where. The, the technicians who make films of you know in general this is this is like a workroom in a way where all of these possibilities are laid out in front of you all these various and sundry types can yeah. be chosen from to create something else to be pieced together and um, it, it's it's almost as if there are certain scenes in the movie where he's using just the background visual detail to comment on how he's creating the background visual details and the foreground visual details. It's all of these characters, and they are assembled in different ways before they're presented to you in the foreground, but they're always, the the pieces and parts are always lurking in the background so that something else could be made from them later on if wishes were to be made that way. So it's, 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 it's intriguing that this... Not you're you're right. They're the only one, the only uh, Baba films that I've ever found were kind of visually lacking, were um, were were the westerns where he, when he's shooting outside, when it feels mm-hmm. as if feels as if we're just kind of uh, getting the footage in the can to a degree. Now once once you got on the sets, even yeah. even the westerns felt you know felt like there was a, some attention to detail and something going on, but the uh, since the vast majority of this movie takes place. Uh, Inside this, you know, this deteriorating villa, uh, it, it's it's an opportunity for the the set dressers and the and the direct decorators to really come to the fore and do something in extraordinary. And I think there's a, there may be a paper to be written on this film, dis- dissecting mm-hmm. uh, which rooms in the villa look perfect, that are beautiful, well painted, perfectly lit. Uh, not a speck of dust in sight, and then the areas uh, that are obviously deteriorating, where the, the the paint is peeling, and there's no furniture, and there's detritus and dirt and scum just uh, in corners of the room, and, it, mm-hmm. and there's uh, the parts of the parts of the painted ceiling are starting to to flake away, and it's uh, I think I think that paper might be written to uh, to point out where the the emotions being expressed in those particular rooms uh, reflect the state in which those rooms are in. But um, not that I'm giving anybody just free credit to run with idea, that idea. Copy, copyright Rod Barnett, 2020. There you go. But the, uh, the, uh, <laughs> the placing with the, placing this story within this rather, you know, this rather large estate, which they go out of their way in Lisa and the devil, not so much in house of exorcism, which really kind of shortcuts this. But um, when the, when these travelers arrive and their, their, their car breaks down in mm-hmm. front of this villa and they go inside, it's made very clear that there's the main house and the, the mother, played by Miss Valley, tells them, you know, tells, uh, I, I can't remember if it's her son or she tells to the servant, uh, played by Telly Savalas, you know, yeah. not to have them here in the house but to take them out to the uh, the cottage. And so we now we then are uh, treated to this rather long walk over mm-hmm. a you know over a little bridge over a stream and a, and through a couple of different uh, plazas where we get to see more of these statues and uh, columns and and various uh, bits of uh, statuary of different types really and even a fountain that they walk by at one point 
until they get to the cottage. So we are shown, at least in Lisa and the Devil, that this is a very sprawling estate. Mm-hmm. And so the the movie is kind of giving you that room as you're picturing this place where the rest of the movie is going to take place, that there is a lot of variation possible here. It's not just uh, this great big opulent house that we haven't seen any details yet of. There's also this outer lying cottage where they're going to be staying that night while they're waiting for their car to be repaired. Right. So there's all this visual, there's all these places that we can go. There's all these nooks and crannies, all these different rooms, and Mm -hmm. all this space outside in between these two different buildings. And, um, there's you never ever get a sense of a map in your head of where everything is in relation to anything else and there come points where you're not even clear if they walked i i i think that the idea of there being two separate buildings gets lost in the movie at a certain point in the dream logic of what's happening in front of yeah. us no i would agree with that i think that was deliberate too because yes. i think in baba's other films there is a, a strong sense of you know geography and sense of you know one place in relation to another here that all just kind of melts away and it also plays into a, a long-standing theme of his which is the the deceptive nature of appearances i'd say that's probably the key theme that runs through baba's films and that's very it makes sense that, that should be something he was very concerned with because of course he was all about sort of fooling the eye wasn't he he was all about stylization and creating something out of nothing and making you think you were looking at a big set when in point of fact it was just a little hanging miniature hanging in front of the camera um so it's it's something that you know we were shown this villa at first of course it looks very ornate it looks very well uh maintained and well taken care of the kind of place that one would think there is a big uh servant staff when in point of fact there's only one butler who is always bitching and moaning about being overworked and uh you know he's tired of having to fix everybody's messes and you know it's, uh, it's more work i say and all this stuff that savalas does a lot of which i think was just ad-libbed um which is just wonderful but um you know on a logical level it's like how is it possible that this place is so well maintained well then of course when we get to the end of the film and she wakes up the next day everything is overgrown so what we're seeing is is the reality versus the fantasy and yes. uh, that's again very much a consistent thing and it's also interesting to know too that uh, because this was an italian spanish co-production we're we're looking at places that are being tied together sometimes you know that are are many many miles removed parts of the film were shot in italy um at a a location called villa frascati which is should not be confused with a uh another villa in Frascati where Bava shot parts of Kill Baby Kill. Um, it gets a little bit confusing. There's a, a place in Rome called Villa Frascati, whereas there is a Villa Lancelotti, I think it's called, in Frascati, which is where Kill Baby Kill was shot. So these, these they're not actually sharing the same locations. But parts of the film were shot there in Rome. Other parts were shot in Toledo and Barcelona and Madrid. So you are, you know, some points you're leaving a room in one part of the house in uh barcelona and then you're ending up in another part of the house which is in rome so (laughs) that kind of contributes to the whole confusion as well i'm sure well earlier you made mention well we both made mention of how much we love the score for the film yes um just out of curiosity um I, I'm a I'm a huge fan of Carlos Savina. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. I've uh, back when I thought this was a wise idea. I, I was 
collecting and grabbing every uh, one of the scores of uh, that had his name attached to it that mm-hmm. would get released on CD. And I quickly realized that if I wanted to do this, I could do this, but then I was going to have to give up something else in my life that required money. It's and true. so um, I stopped after a while. But um, the the joys of his music, um, the, I, I'm constantly amazed by some of the things he was able to pull off. And just, I just want to pull one thing here before we st- we talk about specifically what he accomplishes with the the music that he that's in Lisa that that is in Lisa and the Devil is that the the movie he made the the movie Antonio Margheriti made which I've d- often described as a kind of uh, gothic spaghetti western called And God Said to Cain the music that mm-hmm. Savina wrote for that um, it, it speaks to it speaks to my soul at times. There's a there's a, mm-hmm. a, a a level he was able to achieve sometimes that I think uh, places him amongst the greats. And I don't know that he's ever gotten the kind of attention that he really deserves. And uh, I think it, it's, it's, it's a real shame. I think that he did such astonishing work. And anybody, I, I, I tell you, anyone listening to just the music that plays in Lease and the Devil would know that they were in the presence of someone who was a, a musical genius. Oh, yeah. I think he's I think he's brilliant, but at the same time, that lack of uh, you know common knowledge. This is not a he's not a name that anyone outside of fans of Eurocult cinema are ever going to know, and I, f- I find that to be an absolute disaster and a, a horrible fact. But yeah. the 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 stuff that he did his, his spaghetti western music was always wonderful, and then the the uh, the stuff that as you as he moved into the seventies and he's and he's playing around, he's doing things like. Like even the score, okay. I I have to say I don't think Naked Girl Murdered in the Park is a particularly great huh. giallo. No, uh, I do get a kick out of it, but his music is a standout from that film. Yeah, um, he's interest. He's interesting because you know, as as you say, his name is not nearly well known enough, and yet he has a credit on one of the biggest films of all time. He he conducted the score for The Godfather. Right. Um, I believe, if I remember correctly, he also conducted the uh, extraordinary Philippe Sard uh, soundtrack for uh, Roman Polanski's The Tenant. Um, and, uh, you know, so he's he's somebody who has sort of worked in a variety of different genres. It's interesting you should mention his Jallo work because, of course, I, I've devoted a lot of time writing about Jallo films and talking about Jallo films. And Jally tended to draw a really high pedigree as far as composers were concerned. I mean, some of the scores that you hear in Jallo films are just, you know, extraordinary. Uh, I never really thought that uh, Savina really stood out that much when it came to his Jallo scores, although I agree his uh, Naked Girl Killed in the Park score is kind of fun, and I also really like his score for The Killer Reserved Nine Seats, which is a really fun little movie. Yes. Um, but overall i never really thought he is his standout work was in the giallo i i love his score for blood ceremony which i've mentioned before legend of blood castle the jorge grau film which i think is one of the great soundtracks period great um i love that score i just think it's absolutely wonderful uh incredibly eerie and atmospheric but also very sort of wistful and and uh you know melancholy at the same time um, this was the only movie that he ever scored for Bava, and interestingly enough, um, I alluded to this before, you know, Alfredo Leone hired him to do the score and uh, was very pleased with the music that was turned in, but he almost had an aneurysm years later when he was told that, ah, it seems like all the music was pulled from other movies, so he wasn't very <laughs> happy about that. Um, there is, um, you mentioned before that beautiful moment at the end of the film 
where uh, Elkie Summer comes out of the villa. It's the next morning, and you know everything is all grown over vegetation, and uh, you know she she leaves the villa, and there's that beautiful glass mat shot of of her standing outside. There's a gorgeous piece of music over that scene, which actually came from a 1964 movie, uh, a German Italian crime drama known in the U.S. as Dog Eat Dog, which starred Cameron Mitchell, who's no uh, stranger to Mario Bava, of course, mm-hmm. and Jane Mansfield. Um, so that piece of music is actually available uh, if you track down the, uh, the the soundtrack for that film. You can you can have it on CD because it was written for a much earlier film. A lot of the music actually came from another Antonio Margheriti film, which is kind of a dry run for this movie, a movie called Contra Natura, also known as The Unnaturals which is a 1969 film that I, I freely admit I'm not the world's biggest Margariti fan. I have to say I find a lot of his work rather impersonal and a little bit bland, but Contra Natura is a you major... You are no longer allowed on my podcast. Goodbye, sir. No. Good day to you. Good day to you. I like some of his movies. I just, I don't know. I never clicked with him the way that I did with some other people, uh, like Bava, obviously. But I, I can Contra understand. Nat- I can understand. Contra Natura is wonderful. Um, I'm sure you've seen it, and... Um, it is unfortunately it's a tough movie to see because it deals again with this kind of idea of a 1920s uh, sort of flavored scenario where you have these people in a house where time seems to have stood still. I don't know that Bob ever saw the film. I don't know if there was a deliberate kind of connection between the two films. In the same way, I don't know about the connection with Freda's tragic ceremony, which is a, a bloody mess of a movie, but nevertheless does have very similar elements where you have this character played by Pepe Calvo, uh, who's best known as the coffin maker in Fistful of Dollars. He plays a, a gas station attendant in the film who's roughly analogous to Telly Savalas's character in Lisa and the Devil. Um, again, these kinds of ideas of, of houses, villas, where time has stood still and there's some sort of supernatural occurrence that's going on, which results in a twist at the end. Um, whether Bava was familiar with those films or not, I'll never know because he never talked about it. But appropriately, the reason I mentioned this film is because a lot of the music from uh, Contra Natura ended up on the soundtrack of Lisa and the Devil. So almost all of the music that is in the film that uh, Savino wrote. And there's even a little piece that's in uh, Blood Ceremony as well, which also shows up kind of a shimmering strings uh, piece that you hear several times in Lisa and the Devil definitely came from blood ceremony so uh yeah unfortunately alfredo leone got got himself hustled there because <laughs> i think the <laughs> i think the entire soundtrack was uh, sort of pulled from earlier compositions that he had wrote but uh of course the main piece of music that everybody knows from the film is the uh, concerto de arnwes by joaquin rodrigo um which was made into a sort of poppy uh arrangement by paul marriott which Bava was very much in love with, and he actually played that music on the set a lot. So you hear it in the movie, but he also played it on the set to kind of set the mood for the actors. Well, the uh, the movie The Unnaturals from 1969, it, it, I've never seen a good-looking version of it. Do you know if it's ever been released in a decent version anywhere? There was a, a, a DVD from Germany. I forget the label. Um, it was probably one of those obscenely overpriced hard box copies that come out. Um, yeah. I did snag it. Um, it does have subtitles. <laughs> I don't think it was ever dubbed into English. I don't know that it ever came out in the U.S., which is a tragedy because, again, I think it's really one of the best things that Margarita ever did. 
Um, but the soundtrack is available, and uh, it does have a lot of that sort of 1920s jazz-type music on it, which may or may not be your taste, but the, the actual sort of atmospheric music that's in the film, you'll definitely recognize a lot of it in Lisa and the Devil. Yeah, it seems to me there, there are so many little hidden areas in uh, different people's careers that if you know if a little bit more light was shown on them, or if they were just a little easier to see, that I think that uh, pe- people would become fans. And it just seems to me like that that that's a, that particular movie, The Unnaturals, is one that uh, honestly needs to needs a, a wider viewership. And I don't know, I, w- I wonder if there's anybody who's even in sh- even thinking about this who has the wherewithal to get a film in front of a new audience. It's just kind of a shame. There's so many little lost lost pathways out yeah, there. Yeah, I've recommended it to some of the labels I've worked for. I I don't know if anybody will put it out, but I hope somebody will because it's a movie that deserves some love. I keep I keep thinking about the the, the cast and trying to imagine uh, the, I, what 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 someone might use as a selling point and it's like I don't I don't know that the, you know that somewhere you know, you say well there's the uh, the Italian Peter Lorre's in it hey could that help it's like <laughs> Luciana Pagotti well you got Joaquin uh, Fusberger who of course. Uh, you know, if you're into the creamy films, he's uh, he's a this selling point. And he was this also in The Face of Fu Manchu, the first Christopher Lee Fu Manchu movie. He was a big star in Germany, but you know, what does that mean to people in Indiana? It doesn't mean <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, so. don't get me wrong. He's a he's a big uh, he's a big hit in in my household because we yes. simply love the uh, the creamy films that he starred yes. in. So yeah, yes, he was one of my favorites. And uh, there's some other familiar faces in it too. I don't remember exactly who all is in it, but it does have uh, one of Luciano Pagotti or Alan Collins, if you prefer, uh, one of his. Best roles in that, and again, he's playing kind of uh, kind of analogous character to what Telly Savalas plays in this movie. So, um, yeah, it's a movie well worth tracking down. But the great 
you know, irony in all this, of course, is the fact that he's hired to compose a soundtrack for this film. And eh, I'm just going to grab some of this music that I did for Antonio Margariti a few years and earlier. And get paid for it again. And get paid for it again. Uh, yeah, Leone was not happy about that. I think it was a similar situation to what happened with... Um, Oh, I can't remember the guy's name right now. The the composer who did Bucket of Blood and and uh, Little Shop of Horrors for Roger Corman, and he reused the same score twice. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it happens. Oh, it definitely happens. One 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 thing that I wanted to to get in before we start talking about uh, uh, kind of a, a a different area of the film is that I was when we were talking about the mood and the atmosphere, I was trying to think back to the the types of films that um, this was kind of pulling from as far as mm-hmm. uh, establishing mood and atmosphere and for me it it really would be in 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 the terms of of classic hollywood horror films it really is kind of the val luton way of thinking about creating mood and atmosphere this is this is something that feels a lot like some of the some stretches of something like i walked with a zombie mm-hmm and there's a, I think that the, you know the, those are very specific things, and if you can construct a story where that kind of mood is something that you can evoke, then I think that you, you're ahead of the game because it's going to stand out. It's going to be something that, uh, of course, apparently won't make your movie sell. No, but uh, it is something that makes it stand out as incredibly different from uh, what other people are uh, necessarily doing at any particular time. There are, you know, there. It's like anything else, any other, any other uh, style. It'll it'll go in and out of fashion as time goes on but the the beauty of this is that with Bava we can be fairly certain that he knew exactly what he was doing he was he's far too talented a filmmaker to not know uh, what he was attempting to evoke oh, and yeah. the, um, the the beauty of the mood he creates in this uh, it's, it's not just that he gets to a point where you lose track of the fact that I think one scene to another is taking place in two separate buildings mm-hmm. and not just because they were shot there, but because the film went out of its way to set them up as two different places with lots of space in between them. And that space in between the buildings only seems to exist when we need it to. Exactly. Exactly. So of course, when you get into that mindset, when you're watching something that, that, that plays with really plastic physics, when we're not nailed down to a map for how things are laid out and where one thing is going to occur next to something else, you're, you're really kind of, you're, you're dealing with a, something much more dreamlike and therefore much more interesting to me in a lot of ways. And that, that, that gets to the underlying thought process. What are we looking at here in general? What was the, what was the overlying thought process? And for me, like I say, it is an examination of free will and people examining their own their own desires and their own actions. But also, it seems to be very much a, a kind of metaphysical examination of death acceptance, of, of accepting mm-hmm. the, the, the end of life. And these people, to one degree or another, all seem to be trapped in a position where they are refusing to. Um, there's there are a number of scenes in the movie where we get uh, an idea that could be put into your head very easily of the the old concept of you know as cliched as it sounds and of course there is a there's a medical reason for this now that we know which is the whole idea of dying and moving toward the light the idea of mm-hmm. moving toward the light when you pass away and of course the the real the real medical realization over the past several decades is that that is a, that is such a common thing because the 
the, uh, the let's just say the the retinal nerves uh, have a have a have a, a, a ha, there's an effect that comes over them as life is extinguished that gives that impression. It would be it would be something that would go through the uh, the mind's eye or the right. actual visual cortex of someone as they passed away. And so there is something realistic. You know, it's not just a poetic nature of someone talking about moving toward a, a pleasant afterlife. It is there is an actual physical uh, manifestation right. that people do experience. And so this idea of all these people huddling down inside this dark place, this deteriorating place, this place that they should have moved beyond but still have not, um, mm. the, the more you think about it, the more detail in the film lends that uh, lends you to think in those terms. Right. Well, don't forget, too, uh, the movie literally opens and, and closes with a, a flash of, of white light. Yes. Yeah, and that's uh, that's something obviously was was very much on his mind. I think it also speaks to the fact that again you're dealing with a man who's you know he's uh, he's closing in on his 60th birthday. He's aware of the fact that he's got less time in front of him. I don't think he knew how how little time he had in front of him, but it's kind of similar to what happened with Fulci as well, where after a certain point there is this kind of fascination with death and dying and what happens afterwards and. That goes beyond just a commercial thing where it's just, wow, you know, horror movies deal with that kind of thing. But it turns into a real kind of dialogue with death in many respects. And uh, again, I think it comes back to the fact that we're we're dealing with a man at this point in his career who's really in a tremendously uh, difficult position. He's trying to kind of reinvent himself on a certain level. Uh, in in the hopes of being able to sustain his career, and unfortunately, left and right, it's just not working out for him. So, he's kind of finding himself phased out of the popular film industry because the types of films that he was well known for making are no longer commercially viable. Uh, a movie like Baron Blood was kind of a a last gasp, but it was a very ironic last gasp. It's a very tongue in cheek movie in many respects. You know, you've got this ancient castle with Coca Cola machines installed in it. Yes. So it's this contrast between the stately past and the garish present which is very amusing and very witty um, but you do get a sense out of that he knows that type of movie just ain't gonna fly anymore he's got to move into something different so a movie like this is an attempt at I don't know if he's necessarily courting a kind of art house success but I think on a certain level he's hoping that if the movie's going to be responded to it's probably going to be in that context and if it is accepted in that context that might enable him to parlay that into something else that he might be able to get some more mileage out of didn't work so what do you do next well let's try a gritty realistic crime thriller didn't even have a chance to work it, we'll never know how that film would have done unfortunately rabbit dogs because it didn't get finished when he was alive um so you know again he's kind of hitting one wall after another so i think a lot of that frustration starts to come through in these movies as well there's a sense of somebody who's really desperately trying to communicate with an audience that is kind of deserting him in some respects it's um in a lot of ways, it's almost as if the some of the, well, some, let's put it this way: some of the things that he did in the '70s resonated for decades and still resonate to this day down through the horror genre. Without many people participating in the genre, creating work within the genre, even realizing it, um, mm-hmm. and I think that uh, the, the most obvious one would be Bay of Blood, of course, which is mm-hmm. uh, which is a film that you know set up the template for the for the body count slasher film uh, with much more wit and ingenious 
creativity than the vast majority of slasher films. Uh, and hey, I, I actually kind of like slasher films. Don't get me wrong. Oh, I do too. But at the same time, there was there, there would be no way when he made that film for him to know how influential that piece was. No. And you ha- you would have to think that he would have been much more happy if something like Lisa and the Devil was that influential on the genre down the road. Uh, it's true. And it's easy to spot. It's easy to spot in modern day some filmmakers who are, uh, who are, uh, shall we say, twisted in that particular way that, that twist more mm. toward the Lisa and the Devil into the spectrum than toward the, uh, the Bay of Blood spectrum. But, oh, yeah. But the, uh, the, the thing that you, you wish it, was, it were possible to communicate to him during that period of his life when he was finding it more and more difficult to find work is that his work was going to live on. It was not disposable. It was not the the kind of thing that would be forgotten. Uh, as a matter of fact, I mean, many more people are aware of his work now than the, the day he passed away. And the oh yeah, uh, he, he's another of those you know, much like Paul Nashi, he's another one of those filmmakers who's uh, who only got to see a certain amount of recognition of his. A career before he passed. Luckily, Nash got to got a good deal more than Baba, mm-hmm. but the amount of goodwill toward these men and their work, he was he, he was he never got to experience, and, and, it, and it does cast a, a certain amount of sadness over how I view what he's what what he got what he accomplished, what he got done, and That's least true. the devil to me is the one film out of his entire career. Uh, it's not my favorite of his films. It's definitely in in my top five of his movies. But it is the film that repeatedly I look at and go, "This is a man who was not just aware of his mortality, but wanted to comment on it." Mm-hmm. And this film, more than anything else he made, as far as I can tell, is him talking about coming to terms with death. Mm-hmm. No, I would agree. It's 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 beautiful in that respect because. It's also it, it doesn't it doesn't go away from the, the the playful aspect of his ability to create. This is a man who's still in control of his abilities. He never really lost it, to be honest. And no. he's 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 wide eyed enough to see his own future. And the idea he knows good and well there are you know more days behind him than in front of him. Right. But he's doing excellent work and even bringing his abilities to bear on the question of well how do i f- how do i think about this how do i think about this and how do other people think about this and which one is the better way to think about this who's doing this right who's doing this wrong right and it does it, it does beg the question to a certain extent we talk about a lot of the different uh, genre directors and uh, the decline that they had, and and we can yeah. see this with later day Fulci films, later day Argento films, come to mind as well. Um, was it a blessing in disguise that Bava died when he died? You know, would there have been that uh, decline in his work later on too? I don't tend to think that there would have been because I go back to what I said before about him being a kind of self-sufficient filmmaking unit unto himself. Right. Um, as long as he was capable of doing that, no matter how pitiful the budgets were, he was still able to get really remarkable results on screen. And I don't, I never saw in him a, any period of real decline. 
Um, even, you know, some of the lesser films, as I said before, I'm not a fan of the Westerns that he did, but, um, even those films have their moments. They have their little moments, their little flourishes, their little touches where you're like, okay, I, I can see him in this. So he would argue all the time that he was just a uh, hack who filmed anything that was given to him. We know that's not true. Um, there were projects that he turned down. There were things that he was going to do that didn't pan out for one reason or another that he passed on. Um, he he may not always be credited as the writer on his films, but even Cameron Mitchell commented on the fact that Bava did heavy rewrites on his films, and he was always, famously, even on a film like Roy Colton, Winchester Jack, which does not work, um, he was handed a script that he hated. He had the cast gathered around him on the opening day of shooting, and he said, do you see this? And he tossed it into the mud. <laughs> and he said, we're going to make something. <laughs> and I don't know, maybe maybe he should have stuck to the script there. Maybe it would have been better. I don't know. But I think if there's anything of interest in that film, it probably is a sort of freewheeling uh, sort of improvisatory quality that the film has, where it just seems like it's just, it does feel like it's being made up as you're going along, which I find <laughs> a little bit charming, uh, even if it doesn't work and it doesn't work. But, uh, you know, I, I think he was a man of great taste. I think he was a man of great culture and great intelligence. He was a very witty man. And with his technical skills that he had, you know, assuming he wouldn't have had something happen to him, some physical decline that would have, you know, taken those... Uh, talents away from him um i think he would have continued doing really interesting films into the 80s but with his sensibility i don't know i think it would have been tough for him to continue making the types of movies that he was really comfortable making and that really spoke to him so he would have had to find a way to try and adapt and i don't know what that would have been maybe he would have ended up going back into the sort of slasher thing that um, he helped to create with uh, Bay of Blood or Twitch of the Death Nerve or any other number of titles you want to call it by. Um, yeah. And I you mean, see, maybe- that, is, that is one of the areas where I, we've, I, amongst friends, I've often played the game. What if uh, this, or, this or that filmmaker uh, lived five more years or his yeah. career was five years longer? And there's a part of me that would love to have seen Bava embrace that slasher genre that he inadvertently mm-hmm. created. And um, see, and, and just dive head on into it and see what he would have done. Whether it would have been good or not, it would, would have been entirely up to him. But I would, I would love to, to, to visit the alternate world where that happened, you know? Yeah, I would too. And I, I mean, at the time that he died, he was gearing up to do a uh, kind of alien <clears throat> knockoff, which is ironic in itself because, of course, he had done Planet of the Vampires, which um, I won't yeah. say influenced Ridley Scott because I don't think Ridley Scott ever saw the film, quite frankly, but it definitely influenced Dan O'Bannon, who wrote the script or co-wrote the original script. So there are concepts in that film that were taken from Bava. So, um, yeah, I think he I think he could have done something really interesting with something like that, again, with his technical know-how and his wizardry that he had at his disposal. Um, there were some pretty bad alien and Star Wars-type knockoff pictures that were made um, in, in the late... You think? Yeah, a couple. <laughs> there were couple, a few of them, A couple yeah. not so hot, but uh, I don't think he would have made something <laughs> along the lines of, you know, Star Beast or something like that. I think we would have ended up with something that was really... Could have been a really interesting film, and I, I would love to have seen him do that. But, you know, 1980 was a bad year for us, really, when, when you look back on it. Bava dies, Alfred Hitchcock dies, and Terrence Fisher dies. It was a pretty bad triple, yeah. um, you know, uh, triple loss in the space of a year. That's, that's not good. True, very true. 
Well, Troy, I want to thank you very much for uh, coming on to discuss this uh, in a very roundabout fashion, uh, Lisa and the Devil. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I always love having an opportunity to talk about Bava. He is my favorite filmmaker. I felt inspired to write a book about him many years ago. Um, it's hard to believe it's been as many years as all of that, but... Uh, <laughs> And, uh, you know, that was kind of my intro to really wanting to write about film and uh, pay attention to certain filmmakers who haven't gotten the respect that I think they deserve. Uh, the term genius is thrown around a lot. Uh, I don't think it's always justified, but I think it's definitely justified when it comes to Mario Bava. And uh, Lisa and the Devil is as good an example of that genius as you're going to find. I agree. I agree. I think in the future, what we need to do is uh, have you come back and uh, pick a John Carpenter film to discuss. Oh, I'd be happy to. I, any number of ones that I'd love to talk about. Excellent, excellent. Well, Troy, thank you very much. Thank you. wraps up our episode on Lisa and the Devil. I uh, can't believe it took me this long to work up the courage to actually cover a Mario Bava film. I am such a fan of his work, and I'm sure that came across in this conversation, but uh, yeah, I've just, I guess I've been putting it off. I guess maybe I thought that eventually I would cover a couple of my other favorites of his, like Danger Diabolic or uh, Planet of the Vampires or Black Sunday, but Lisa and the Devil got the nod first. So, thank you guys for listening to the show. If you have any comments, suggestions, questions, the email address for the show is thebloodypit at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And uh, remember, if you can comment about the podcast, wherever you find the podcast, uh, comment. The more people who are aware of the show, uh, and comments are a way that they become aware of the show, um, that uh, that helps us out. That helps more people know we exist and uh, therefore listen and uh, maybe enjoy. Who knows? They might. Um, but thank you once again for listening to this. And uh, we will talk to you again next time with uh, probably another horror movie. I got a, I got one in the can. I think that's going to be fun. It's a, it's a zig to the zag on this one. But uh, thank you very much. And... Uh, Here's a little tune that uh, puts me in mind of the mindset of, uh, shall we say, the Telesavalis character in Lisa and the Devil. Thank you, guys. <laughs>